0: You're listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. On this podcast, we feature a curated selection of content from the pages of New Ideal, the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. At New Ideal, we explore pressing cultural issues from the perspective of Rand's philosophy, Objectivism, which upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. Find us on the web at newideal.ainrand.org. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Again, to New Ideal Live, this is the video and podcast series of New Ideal, which is the journal of the Ayn Rand Institute. We discuss complex issues and events shaping our world from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism, which is a philosophy that upholds the ideals of reason, individualism, and capitalism. You can learn more about us and about our journal by visiting newideal.ainrand.org. And I'd also like to announce that for those of you who are currently viewing us on social media, who are viewing us either on Facebook or YouTube or Periscope. That, if you'd like to be able to join more directly in the Q and A, you should try uh, watching us through Zoom. Uh, you can do that by going to zoom.us/join and entering the meeting ID eight one two five zero six seven one eight. So uh, I should mention, my name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow and instructor at the Ayn Rand Institute. I'm gonna be joined shortly by uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Greg Salmiere. Uh, But first, I wanna just say a little bit about the topic we're gonna be discussing today. Uh, Every week we analyze uh, different uh, cultural political topics, especially right now as related to the uh, pandemic that many of us are dealing with, Um, often the focus of our webinars is the, uh, the material that we're currently working on uh, writing about, and I'm currently working on a topic, a piece that's related to the question, should we accept suffering as a part of life? Uh, and what does Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism have to say about this question? So Greg, are you out there? Waiting for Greg to join us.
1: Yes, Ben, hold on. Just trying Greg. to get my camera working again.
0: <laughs> well, we hear you. Here we go. It's is always reassuring. So, uh, Greg, I, I was interested... I'm going to stop my screen share for... Actually, I'll keep it up because there's a few things I want to um, show uh, before we get into this. Uh, I was interested in this topic because there was a series of articles... Uh, that came out in a variety of publications from both um, secular and religious thinkers who were interested in grappling with, in one way or another, what they took as the larger philosophic significance of the pandemic that we're all currently dealing with, and in particular, the question of whether there's any significance or meaning in the fact of suffering and death, which is unfortunately, on everybody's mind right now. Uh, and this came up in a number of different forms. So, for instance, there was an article by uh, Ross Douthit, uh in the New York Times. He's he's kind of a, I, th- I believe he's a conservative Catholic. Uh, and the, the article was called The Pandemic and the Will of God. This was on April 20th. And dealt with the question of why the why the God that Christians believe in would allow there to be so much suffering in the world, not only now, but uh, generally speaking. And he goes through a variety of different answers that different Christian thinkers have given, uh, says that some of them think that there's a, there's a, there are definite answers here, that uh, for instance, suffering they think has a kind of positive value, or maybe it allows you to prove your strength, or maybe it gives God the opportunity to uh, save us from our suffering. Uh, Although he notes that not everybody thinks that there are definite answers and he himself toward the end of the article gestures toward the idea that the answers aren't going to be simple. None of them are going to give us any kind of comfort and allow us to return to normal life. Uh, Another uh, piece of analysis that came out was from a sermon by Pope Francis. Uh, He gave this sermon to an evacuated St. Peter's Square on March 27th uh, and he drew a kind of analogy between our situation uh, and the situation in the, in the old gospel story about the disciples who were caught in a boat during the storm. Uh, and I'll just read a couple of uh, uh, things that he said in this uh, sermon. I think then, Greg, you wanted to say a few things about them. Uh, he says, the storm exposes our vulnerability and uncovers those false and superfluous certainties around which we have constructed our daily schedules, our projects, our habits, And priorities. He goes on, he says, the tempest lays bare all our prepackaged ideas and forgetfulness of what nourishes our people's souls, all those attempts that anesthetize us with ways of thinking and acting that supposedly save us. Uh, And he ends it with a call to say, uh, basically, what we really need in a situation like this is to go by faith, to have faith in the Lord. So let me um, stop the screen share for the moment and. bring you on, Greg, because I know that you, you especially wanted to say some things about the Pope's sermon and some other commentary. Yeah, I mean, there's a
1: certain level of abstraction at which I think the Pope is on to something, which is often the case in papal encyclicals. Mm-hmm. They're sensitive to what issues are philosophical, which issues can have to do with meaning in life and how we interpret great events. But then uh, I think he's deeply wrong about the lesson to draw from it. Uh, So if you think about what things, what were the phrases he uses, um, the convenient, um, let me just pull it back up. Um, All right, so the storm exposes our vulnerability. That's true. Uh, It's very obvious in what ways we're vulnerable to this infection that we might not have been aware of before. And it uncovers those false and superfluous certainties around which we have constructed our daily schedules, our projects, our habits, and priorities. So what are these false and superfluous uh, certainties? What does the Pope think they are and what are they in fact? Well, if, for example, um, you're counting on um, a certain company to exist forever and have a job for you there forever, you work in a certain restaurant and you expect this restaurant will always be open and always work. Yeah, it turns out that's not true. Uh, and if you were just going to you were certain that life was always going to go on just as it were and you were always going to be able to have that job and so forth. Yeah, it turns out that that's not true. Maybe you should have known that before, but if not, you sure know it now. And so you're going to have to think about how do I deal with a world in which a lot of the concrete particular things that I had expected to always be around for me and that I built my plans around, I might not be. Um. But then what's the alternative then? What is permanent and enduring? What can we, you know, take as a rock to build on? Well, for the Pope, it's, uh, it's faith and whatever, uh, it's not just this particular job uh, or this particular institution that is superficial and uncertain, but it's something broader than that. And um, Amari uh, wrote a commentary on uh, this book, this, uh, sermon in First Things, which is a Catholic journal. And here was Amari's comment, which I think really brings out what I think is what the Pope is saying. What are these words, writes Amari, if not an indictment of the whole modern spirit that has tried to substitute humanity's achievements, what we could know with our senses, measure with our instruments, express in mathematical, mathematical language and construct in space for the whole of truth, and why would Francis choose to draw attention to the poverty of the modern scientific worldview, that scaffolding of the liberal order, at this moment just when public confidence in that scaffolding and that order is in freefall? Why
0: so would he indeed?
1: what is it that's temporary, illusory, incomplete, we shouldn't rely on it, not just this job at this restaurant or what the state of the economy will be, or even if your country will persist into the future, it's the ability to know things based on your senses, to come up with scientific solutions to it, uh, and to try to advance human life. Now, what's the evidence in this virus that that's false, that that's a superficial certainty? What would have happened if this virus had hit in a world of people who didn't do those things? What happened when it did hit, when people weren't doing those things? That is when the Chinese government was lying about it and covering it up, rather than following the evidence of their senses. When various politicians in various countries, including ours and at different levels, uh, weren't going by the evidence and thinking it true and trying to figure out about what we could do with it. Did that work better? Someone on the chat mentions the Black Death. Yeah, it's not like um, uh, things worked out just fine and dandy when these popes had their way. Um, Now, they would say, yes, but what religion does is it gives you what really matters, which is faith, which is recognizing that we don't have control, not just that we don't have control over this or that concrete so much, that we might have to deal with uh, changing circumstances, that we shouldn't put all our eggs in the particular basket of what if this business goes, what if this thing happens, what if the economy goes down, not just that we can be uncertain about that, but that we should be uncertain about, and in fact, about our ability to survive in the world as human beings and in fact certain that we can't which of you added one cubit to your stature said jesus and this is the kind of idea that the well, have you you just have to accept that you know yeah you can toil and you can reap and plant but you don't create the increase you're not responsible for what happens you're not able to make your way in the world not you individually and not human beings as a species and so what we have to do is turn to faith that God will make this right somehow, make this meaningful to us, uh, get rid of our conceit that we are capable of living and capable of happiness.
0: And it's certainly not his view that if we have faith, the disease is going to go away and we'll, we'll, we'll all be uh, cured, uh, with some miracle cure. Uh, it's it's, it's uh, a different form of consolation than that. It's... Maybe there will be some meaning in a higher realm, though he's not even interestingly not saying that. Uh, it, with he's he seems to be more with the, uh, the uh, on the negative side of things in that article by Douthat, where he says some people give definite answers, some people say no, Christianity doesn't have any answers. He's he doesn't give us a, de- a definite answer. He just says there's a negative lesson: we're not who we thought
1: we are. Uh, and that's yeah, supposed to encourage us to have tell us you know. You ask us not to be afraid. He's now talking to God, I, get, I take it. Uh, this is the Pope again. Yet our faith is weak and we are fearful, but you, Lord, will not leave us at the mercy of the storm. Tell us again, do not be afraid. And we, together with Peter, cast our anxieties onto you, for you care about us. So what's the solution to the fact that there's a virus raising to the fact that you can't control as much as maybe you thought in the concrete to the fact that maybe someone, you know, is sick to the fact that you and your friends are well trust in someone. Trust in God, but it's no different if it's trust in the CCP or trust in Donald Trump or trust in Andrew Cuomo or someone will take care of it. Yeah. I'm weak. I'm hopeless, I can't do anything, someone will take care of it. Take care of your damn self and demand that the people in authority that you've elected for and vote for start taking responsibility for this, which is part of taking care of it. I don't mean like you can do everything all alone, but think what can I do to make my life better? Who is there in the world that are doing things to make life better And how can I support them, even just morally support them, cheering them on like the people who clap for the doctors, which is, I think, a really positive sign in the culture. And for my representatives and so forth, let it be known that I don't want you just putting your faith in God and I'm not putting my my faith in you. If we need more tests, let's make more damn tests. And, you know, think about how to do that. How can I contribute to that, either if I'm someone who could do it or how can I find out who to vote for to do it or what to buy to do it or where to send money? let's actually try to solve problems rather than pretending that we can't.
0: So Greg, what I thought was really interesting uh, in this uh, in the past month or so of commentary is that you see a very similar attitude coming not from uh, religious thinkers, but even uh, from secular ones. And I'm gonna put uh, my screen share back up because there's, I, I spotted a couple of secular articles that are really in the same basic vein. Uh, so in, also in the New York Times, interestingly, there is a piece by Simon Critchley. Critchley. Now, Critchley is, uh, I think, one of the editors of their Stone, the Stone philosophy column. Uh, and he's also a pretty popular uh, philosopher in his own right. He has a bunch of books that are uh, written to a popular audience. Uh, he had a column called To Philosophize is to Learn How to Die. Now, this is April 11th. Now that line, of course, as you know, is is, is taken from uh, Plato, uh, from his uh, dialogue, the Phaedo, and we could maybe talk more about the significance of that in uh, in Plato, but um, he doesn't actually talk about Plato in the column. He does, however, bring in a number of other, uh, both secular and religious thinkers. I assume Critchley himself is, uh, is uh, some kind of secularist. And he gives us again, a kind of ambiguous message uh, which we'll have to tease apart. He says, first of all, well, one of the things that philosophy gives you is, uh, and this is true for, I, I, take he's saying, I take it he's saying for secular philosophy, it gives us the wisdom to not rebel against basic facts, including all men are mortal. We have to accept and recognize our mortality, which by itself sounds uh, pretty obvious and important, and, and there are people who, who do want to rebel against that very fact, uh, including perhaps some of the uh, religious thinkers that we've been talking about. But he goes on to say, another part of the philosophical life is to welcome death's approach uh, and to accept and affirm a kind of, a deep kind of anxiety that we all have living in the world. And then he ends the piece uh, with the following. And it's noteworthy that here, even though he's overall arguing in a secular vein, he quotes the religious thinker, Pascal. He says, human beings are wretched, Pascal reminds us. We are weak, fragile, vulnerable. There's that word again, dependent creatures. But as this is the vital, and this is the vital twist, he says, our wretchedness is our greatness The universe can crush us, a little virus can destroy us, but the universe knows none of this and the virus does not care. We, by contrast, know that we are mortal. Our dignity consists in this thought. Uh, And it's an interesting question of what he means by that. It's true that very important difference between us and the rest of the universe is that we know about our mortality. We know a lot of things, as it turns out. Um, What exactly is the strength that he's referring to in that knowledge. He doesn't really say. Um, and I know you might have wanted to say more about that, but let me also mention the second article first, uh, a, a different uh, secular perspective was is appealed to by Roy uh, Meredith in the journal Quillette on April 4th. And he, the secular tradition, well, it's quasi-secular, that he draws on is uh, the ancient Greek philosophy of Stoicism. In particular, he uh, brings in the Stoic philosopher Seneca. Uh, And you might understand some of what he's doing here to be offering at least one possible answer to the question of what the strength is in accepting our mortality and in knowing about our mortality. Uh, He again urges us to accept that fact. But then he also says because we shouldn't rebel against our mortality, it's irrational to fear anything that might cause our death, including, including an illness. Uh, what we should do instead, he thinks, is to, uh, to deal with the pain that we experience in life. We should think of role models who've triumphed over pain, okay, but also we should stop wanting the pleasures of life because if we stop wanting them, then we won't be frustrated when we won't get them. When we accept the fact that we have to stay at home on our couch and not go out to restaurants, et cetera, uh, not see our friends, uh, then we won't be disappointed when uh, we we can't do that anymore. And that's a classic stoic idea. Uh, At the end of the piece, he closes with this passage. He says, throughout both his life and his writing, Seneca showed that everyone has the strength to act heroically What's the, the heroism that he has in mind? Even if it means doing something as simple as staying glued to your couch. And if indeed everything hangs on one's thinking and he and his philosophical heirs frequently remind us, then this pandemic is just as much an opportunity as it is a curse. We can all show our descendants that we were the generation who stopped everything, who stopped everything uh, to protect our society's most vulnerable. Uh, so let me stop this screen share and bring you...
1: Uh, back on Greg. Thoughts on? Well, there are a few things going yes. on there. First, I'm I'm skeptical about calling this secular. And the Stoics certainly were not secular thinkers. That's why
0: I said quasi-secular. They though. were
1: pre-Christian, um, but they uh, a lot of this had to do with their view of Zeus running everyone's lives and so forth as a somehow force that interpenetrates everything. Um, but then, so much of what we consider secular worldviews today are just slightly rewritten religious dogma. Mm -hmm. uh, And I think the kind of worship of suffering that we see uh, in so much of uh, a society uh, is that, uh, and if you think about the idea in the last piece, I'll I'll say about the Stoics in a moment, but in the last piece that we, the goal is to protect the most vulnerable and so forth. And there's a kind of fetishizing of suffering and the vulnerable that is, I think a distinctly Christian thing that is, um, very widespread in our society. And you see it in that piece. Um, of course, if someone's vulnerable and you can help them, um, it's good to help them if you can do it non-sacrificially, people are good and it's worth helping them when you can. But the idea that it's necessarily good to stop everything to help the, to save the most vulnerable with no idea of the cost to the other people, uh, implies a kind of, um, prioritizing of the safety of the vulnerable over all else, which I think you can see in some of the policy prescriptions and in some of the way people just instinctually think about what's going on now. And I think that that is is a bad thing. But more generally, if we look at at the stoicism, and stoicism is, in my view, a false philosophy and a really, really bad philosophy um, that basically says, give up. I think it's a rationalization for giving up and for detaching from the world. And I think there is a kind of admirability in the way that people can um, face death with equanimity. But there are two types of facing death with equanimity. There's facing death with equanimity because, or what you can call equanimity, or a kind of uh, simulacrum of it, because you don't care about anything. So you have nothing to lose and you don't care about your life. And there is a kind of facing it with equanimity because you accept that life is finite. You know, that there are risks to it. Uh, you hope you live a long time, but if you live less long, well, you know, that's possible. And you know that you've done the most with your life. You've done what you want out of life. You've had a life where you've gotten, you've wrung every last drop out of it. And if it has to end now, it would be nicer if it went on, but at least, you know, it's a wonderful life that I've lived. And, uh, what I've done with it means something. And what I could have done if I went on means something to me. But uh, now I see that it's the end and I'm happy with what I've done with my life. That is what um, I think a real admirable facing death with equanimity is. It's the way that some of my friends who I've uh, seen in their last days who have uh, I really admired how they faced it, it's how they were. And it is the opposite of a stoic worldview.
0: It's interesting, you say that stoicism is a kind of rationalization for giving up. And I can see how that would work if it trades on uh, a, an ambiguity between those two kinds of equanimity, as you say, now, on the one hand, there is real courage in accepting facts that you can't change. But if you then say uh, all facts are like that, we should accept everything and give up it. It, it makes it seem semi rational to do that when in fact, they're of course very different. And uh, I was going to, I was going to mention that uh, th- this whole issue, I mean, what's, what's striking, as you mentioned, is that, that there's a, a common thread running through the religious thinkers and at least the nominally secular thinkers here, that all of them uh, are is hold in common this view that there's a kind of virtue in, in giving up, a virtue in resignation in the face of suffering. And I was re- reminded of what they call uh, the Serenity Prayer, which is a, a popular uh, sort of proverb, uh, popularized especially by people in Alcoholics Anonymous, but uh, also recommended by uh, an atheist like Ayn Rand. She thought there was a great deal of wisdom in it. And it runs God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And it strikes me that uh, all of these commentators are, are really just focusing on the first part, on accepting uh, the things you cannot change, and equating that entirely with the courage, ignoring the courage to change the things we can and the wisdom to know the difference. Uh, and this, it strikes me as a very different view of courage at work here. Uh, almost like the difference between the Stoic view of courage and something like Aristotle's view of courage, uh, which, which said, no, courage means the virtue of acting in the face of fear. It uh, doesn't mean fear is irrational.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, it's, both the Stoic view and Aristotle's are a little complicated if we want to get into the details of, of the virtue. Um, so I don't know that it, it's best to go there with the time that we have. But there is an issue of like, what is the value of serenity? Do you want to be serene so that there's nothing going on and you're just a kind of like, you know, stoned out, placid person? Or is serenity a value because it enables you to do something? Is putting your emotions and your fears and your worries and so forth in context? uh, Why? In what context and towards what purpose? And I don't think Stoicism ever really has an answer to that. It says, you know, well, it'll help you act and so forth, but then they don't know what the goal of action is. In my view, bad things are bad because they disrupt and debilitate our lives. And our lives are activities engaged in the world, processes of achievement, where we're changing the world for the better for us. We're committing to certain goals. We're working to achieve them. And we recognize sometimes it goes wrong. And then we pick ourselves up and we do it again to try to get the most out of this life, to try to prolong our lives, to try to make them richer in so many different ways, materially, spiritually. Um, There's so much that we can accomplish on earth. Uh, There's a kind of ambition that is proper to human beings. And then in that context, there's a kind of serenity that's needed to carry on with that kind of uh, ambitiousness in the face of obstacles, setbacks, uncertainty, etc. So if you look at Stoic writers, you can find things that are kind of good advice taken out of context about not letting yourself be overwhelmed by fear or pain and putting it all in perspective. But again, the perspective of what? Stoicism and this kind of cult of resignation and giving up and suffering and equanimity in the face of suffering is an anti-life, anti-value philosophy because it's unambitious. These things are values for the sake of ambition to accomplish something in your life on earth. And we have, we are so resilient to this disease compared to what we could be because of all the people who have been ambitious, who have made the most of their lives, who have thought, sought out knowledge, who have uh, created all the wonderful things that we enjoy and count on. And we are so much less powerful than we could be if there had been more people like this. So let's resolve ourselves to be that kind of person.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about that because uh, I, th- I thought it was striking that the, um, the Critchley article uh, said that what makes us so distinctively human is that we know about the fact of our mortality. And and there's some that's true, it's partially true. That's one of the things that makes us distinctive. That's not the only thing, of course, that we know about. We also, and this is one of the things that Ayn Rand emphasizes in that article where she talks about uh, the serenity prayer. This is her article, the metaphysical versus the man-made. And she stresses that uh, part of what makes human beings distinctive is that we have minds that can conceptualize the universe we can grasp cause and effect connections and we can rearrange the universe in uh, accord with our knowledge so that we can if we want a different effect we can introduce a new cause and that's of course what science is all about uh, and here i think it's a particularly elegant symbol this is a story that a lot of people have been discussing of late uh, as you know we've all had to stay at home under quarantine they, the, the story of isaac newton uh, has come out because uh, famously Newton was uh, put under quarantine quarantined because of, a, I think it was a cholera uh, epidemic or the plague. I can't remember exactly which. Uh, and they shut down Cambridge and he went home to his farm. And it was in that very year uh, in 1665, this, was, this is what they call his miracle year. This is the year that he uh, invents the calculus, uh, formulates new principles of optics and uh, I mean, it's, it's the tree that the apple falls from uh, in, in the legend is at this farm. Uh, and this is of course the genesis for his theory of universal gravitation, his principles of mechanics. And I mean, this is, a, this is the milestone year uh, in the history of science, because it's when he realizes that the laws governing the heavens, which had previously been thought to be detached and irrelevant to everyday life, can have application on Earth. And it's because of the way in which he ends up revolution, revolutionizing science that we eventually get the Industrial Revolution, we get revolutions in technology, and eventually from that, of course, revolutions in none other than medical science. And we get people uh, figuring out how to save millions and millions of lives uh, from these previously apocalyptic uh, you know, epidemics that was spread all over the earth. And obviously, you know, it hasn't eliminated them completely, but I mean, what kind of world would we be living in today? Were we living at all uh, if it weren't for these uh, achievements of human genius? Uh, And okay, we're not all geniuses ourselves, uh, but we too can discover facts about the world and ways to make things better by engaging our minds and taking inspiration from other people who've achieved things as well.
1: So let me give you guys someone to take inspiration from, if you want a philosophical inspiration. Put aside the Stoics and Jesus and all these anti-living, anti-ambition creeds. And let's look at someone who was an inspiration to Newton, Newton at his best and in his best moments and that's Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon was reflecting on the differences he saw in the conditions of the people living in the new world and the people living in, uh, in Europe where he was. Uh, this is a couple of generations earlier than Newton. And he thought- We're at 30 minutes, so. And he thought man is a god to man. Men are in comparison of their condition Some of them are like gods with respect to the others, with respect to how much power they have, how much they're able to do, how in control of their lives they are. Some people are like gods compared to others. And the difference comes not from the soil, he writes, not from the climate, not from the race, but from the arts, that is from science, from knowledge. And he identifies three particular things that Europe had that the new world didn't, right? That made them so powerful. Printing gunpowder, and the magnet. Where does this come from and what is what lesson should we take from it? That we should try to discover these types of things. Newt, uh, Bacon is a pro-ambition philosopher and he talks about the greatest kind of ambition is to endeavor to, ex- uh, quote, to endeavor to establish and extend the power and dominion of the human race itself over the universe. This kind of ambition, he thinks, is wholesome and noble. And he writes, The empire of man over over things depends wholly on the art and sciences, for we cannot command nature except by obeying her. And all of this business about serenity, accepting the things we cannot change, what that amounts to is obeying nature, But the point of obeying nature, of accepting and recognizing that things are what they are, that we have certain limitations, that certain things work this way, that we can't get around them, that we're mortal, that a sickness is a certain nature, that it could take you or kill your loved ones, the point of recognizing all of that is to then use that knowledge to figure out how to command nature, to make the world better for you and for human life generally, but you know, with an emphasis on your own life. That's what this is about. That's the value of serenity. So take all of these modern naysayers and religious thinkers and pseudo philosophical um, pundits who are uh, all on about despair and resignation should take a page from Bacon. Accept what you can't change so that you can change what you can.
0: So that, that line, Greg, about uh, nature to be commanded must be obeyed was, of course, a famous line of, of Ayn Rand's. Uh, and it's, uh, it, I mean, it was a fa- favorite uh, line of hers. It uh, was my favorite. Not, not, yes. Uh, and it's one that she talks about in that essay that I mentioned before uh, on the metaphysical versus the man-made. And it's what she sees as the key to proper serenity. And I just wanted to put up on the, uh, on the screen here uh, something else that's related from her work, which uh, some people might not be as familiar with because uh, I found this passage in her notes uh, on uh, Atlas Shrugged, uh, dealing with some of these very same issues and as they relate to the role of suffering in life and what she takes to be the proper way to think about it. Uh, And this is taken from uh, her what she called Notes on Morality, May 19th, 1949. And she says, Man does not exist for suffering. Suffering is an accidental, marginal part of existence, which he must fight in order to be free to exist in happiness, which he must overcome as quickly as possible and not spend his life seeking, thus making it the aim of his life. The suffering, which threatens men from physical nature, is negligible compared to the suffering he brings upon himself and others. If man functioned properly in the field open to him and uh, determined by him, The field of his choice, his free will, his thinking and actions, he would eliminate it most, and perhaps even all, the physical suffering caused by the accidents of his physical nature. And you see a similar uh, uh, attitude coming out in various parts of Gaul's speech in Atlas Shrugged. There's a line that's very similar uh, to this in sentiment in Rourke's speech, uh, also uh, in The Fountainhead. Uh, and I think we should start to move to questions uh, pretty soon. Uh, so people who are interested in asking us questions, please use the Q&A box in Zoom. But uh, before we do that, Greg, did you did you want to uh, share any final thoughts before we go to Q&A?
1: Well, just all of the facts we've talked about, that people achieve things, that people suffer, that some of the suffering is through no fault of their own, that the particular detail, someone can die, someone can invent a medicine – All of that is known by everybody. So the question here is, what do you regard as important? What do you regard as reflective of the nature of human beings and where we are in the world? Which are the facts to focus on? And that's really a kind of metaphysical question, and it's a question that goes to what Ayn Rand calls your sense of life. to argue about it, we've done a little bit throughout this call. Um, But I think it's just worth reflecting on what the scope of human history and what you know about human beings suggests, that we're helpless playthings of fortune because a lot of times bad things happen to people, or that we're capable and able to create lives worth living uh, and uh, that we love. Thanks, Greg. So we've got a
0: number of questions coming in, uh, some through Zoom, but we've also had a few channeled to us uh, from YouTube. And I actually think there's a couple of YouTube questions that might be good to start with. Um, Andrew on YouTube asks doesn't it stand to reason that if suffering is the moral ideal it gives rise to a psychological desire to exaggerate negatives in order to maximize pain and he suggests that maybe something like that is going on among commenters uh, about the current pandemic Do you have thoughts on that
1: i think yeah there, there's a i think there's something to that there's a i wouldn't just put it as the moral ideal but the idea that it's the most important thing in life, and the idea that when you see people succeeding, you view them as, um, you know, well, pride goeth before a fall, and of course, all this wealth and splendor and health that people enjoy, they're just asking for it. And so if you're on that kind of premise, then there's a kind of glee uh, in pointing out uh, people getting their comeuppance or things going down, and you feel like, yes, this is the world as I recognize it the world of my you know, worm-eaten um, religious and stoic tomes, the world of suffering and resignation in front of suffering, there's a kind of, it feels like jumping back into a warm bath of water to you. And uh, if that's your worldview, there'll be a kind of comfort in it, comfort in expressing it. And in putting down the people who were smarty pants and thought they could uh, live and enjoy life and make it better.
0: So... Greg, there's also a question that came in uh, from Param on YouTube, and I don't know uh, precisely what situation he's dealing with, but he says, as a young person in college who happens at the moment to be miserable, how do you not give up on happiness? And I could add to that another uh, wrinkle, which is that, yeah, I I get what you're saying uh when you say that the people who who view suffering as important uh can uh, see it as an opportunity to uh, diminish the, the the people who've made achievements people who've been confident um, but i mean in light in the same line of what param is asking when things are really bad. <laughs> I mean sometimes things are really bad arguably things are bad are much worse in our culture and in our economy and uh, our political situation today than they have been in quite a while. and so it's it's sometimes very hard, I and mean, especially if you're dealing with a loss of a job or you know actually somebody you know who's actually gotten sick and died, uh, it can be very hard to not see that as defining and important. and so I mean do you have thoughts or strategies uh, for people who are dealing with, because suffering is real. It does exist. Yeah. And it's horrible strategies for seeing that it's not the important thing in life.
1: Well, when it's important, it's important because of what it's preventing, what it's stopping you from doing, what you could be doing. And I think you have to mourn the things that you've actually lost uh, if you've actually lost a person or a path forward in life, there was a particular path in life, the kind of thing the Pope would demean as superficial or whatever, but you know, you wanted this job, this career, whatever, and that's not gonna be possible to you. Think about, you know, is it still possible to me or is it not? And if it's not, I think you really have to mourn it and take it as this is part of what I wanted out of life. Um, but then you have to think about, all right, par- I wanted these things as part of a life. And if it's people who I've lost, um, there were things I liked about those people and things they loved about me and there were things that were you know, important about those relationships. And you know, you could think of it in terms of what would that person have wanted for me or what way of carrying on um, would um, honor their memory. And if, again, if it's a project or a job or a career, honor and, and be a new way of, of going for what I was going for in that part of my life that's cut out off for me now and then think about what is a way forward. And part of what's horrible about a time like this is that it's not clear that there is a way forward right now where um, it's not just that we've suffered a loss and now the loss is through and we are um, able to rebuild. Uh, Some of us have ways that we can rebuild right now, but others of us, we're weathering a storm and we're not sure what will come out at the other end. But if you're trying to weather it, you're trying to survive at the other end, you want to hold on to the general fact that there are values worth achieving in the world. There are whatever things you've lost and however bad those losses are, they are representatives or parts or fragments of a type of life that you know is possible and that it's sad, therefore, when it's not actualized or when it's taken from you. And there will be a time again when you'll be able to start to rebuild in some form. And it would be treating the things that you've lost as unimportant as not mattering and treating only the loss as mattering and not the value of the things lost as mattering. If you don't, when the time comes, build, move on, and try to live again. And so the focus has to be on living again. If there's something you can do to live again right now, there's a way to pivot in your business, there's a way to find another job, there's a way to find a, you know, work on a medical treatment or find the best doctor or whatever, then be doing it. If there isn't and all you can do now is bide your time, Will recognize that what you're biding your time for is when we can return to life again, and that that will happen. And be, you know, thinking about what might I do then? How can I, is there something I can do in this hiatus time from life that's a horrible time to put me in a better position? Like, you know, maybe there's a class I could take or books I could read or whatever that will either inspire me or give me knowledge and skills for when it's time to move on. But be thinking about, be looking forward to the time when you're able to live again and thinking about how to do it because that's what matters that that's possible and suffering only matters in relation to that not as an absolute in its own right
0: uh, so a number of number of different things to to uh, discuss because of that um, uh, so steve in uh zoom says the following he says Our parents or grandparents had to fight wars against totalitarian dictatorships when for a while it was unclear who would win. Why do we think today's challenges are so difficult? I've heard uh, variations on this question uh, where people will say, our, our grandparents went to war, we're being asked to sit on our couch. And half of that appeals to me. It makes me think, yeah, people have had to go through worse and they dealt with it admirably and we should take inspiration from that. Uh, But on the other hand, if, if, if the only uh, thing that we're supposed to be inspired to do is to sit on our couch, then that's not very inspiring. And so it makes me think in relation to what you were just saying that have the, you know, have the courage to sit on your couch is not very good advice. It's at the very least, if you're stuck at home and there's nothing to do, you should have the courage to improve yourself in, in some way, in some of the ways that you just suggested. Um, Do you want to add more to that?
1: I mean, part of it might be you know doing the work needed to maintain your perspective, right? Which might be you know reading artworks that inspire you, or or being part of philosophy conference calls, or talking with friends. So it's not like you've got to you know learn to code or something. Although that could be a good use of your time. Um, but it's um, if you're going to be using the time to try to find perspective, you know, make sure it's the right perspective. And as far as our grandparents. Um, Oh, there's a lot of mawkish admiration for the so-called great generation. It mostly comes from, you know, hippies who feel bad about having been mean to their parents in the 60s, and now they want to be over nice to them. That was not a great generation in the grand scheme of things in history. Um, They won World War II, at least the Allied side of it, but they also made a lot of stupid blunders that got us into it. They delivered half the world over to communism. Um, So I don't, you know, I I don't have that real admiration for that time in in history. There were good things and bad things in it, like there are good things and bad things now. I think it is true that compared to the challenges that were faced then, um, many of the challenges we face now are small. And that perspective is worth keeping, but it's also worth keeping in mind the kind of mistakes that were made then, including too much uh, trust in leaders who didn't deserve that trust, not enough challenging of basic premises, too much um, resignation and worshipping of need uh, that I think led to the bad outcomes that they then had to you know try to fight
0: and and part of that was because they were answering the call of leaders who were calling them to sacrifice uh, it starts with obviously uh, Hitler 's call to do that, uh, and there was the greatest g- generation in Germany too. Uh, but then, yeah, you can also ask questions about uh, were Americans sacrificed unnecessarily to that cause? And would you want to call, uh, answer that call? Uh, that's a much longer discussion. Um, it does relate, though, to a question that uh, uh, Bradley is asking in Zoom, and, and a point that's come up already a little bit in our conversation, because one of the things that Ayn Rand says in that passage that I showed at the end was about how a great deal of man's suffering comes from Uh, man's own decisions. Uh, And Bradley asks, do you think the biggest source of suffering for people today is their failure to realize the first source of happiness will come from doing work they love? Uh, We might generalize that a bit and ask, well, what are the ways in which human decisions are responsible for the suffering that we face? That suffering then, which apparently didn't have to happen if it really is coming from uh, our decisions and not from the nature of reality or something like that.
1: I wouldn't know how to quantify you know, what's the first or second or third cause, but I think you know a lot of suffering that doesn't have to happen happens because people are not taking enough responsibility for making what they want to out of their lives and not recognizing what control they have. They don't have infinite control over everything, but they have some. And I think most people, certainly most people in the developed world, have enough control to make a life that they'll be happy with. And um, I think more people should be more focused on that. And then I think another major source is, um, of, of suffering is um, political measures that are premised on the fact that we are all victims and um, things that get things done to us rather than agents who do things in the world. Uh, and th- therefore, create a political situation which is harder for us to uh, to achieve. So, in, in those two different ways, I think the the focus on suffering and all the bad things that can happen to us is a, a major cause of suffering. But you know, how to give the numbers of that, I don't know.
0: I mean, in this regard, the the what the Pope wrote in that uh, in that homily is in a way, particularly ironic because he's saying, learn from this tragedy that we're all vulnerable and we can't do anything. We can't save ourselves. What's the alternative? Have faith, believe without evidence. Well, why did, why did this uh, catastrophe get to the scale that it did in the first place? Why are we dealing with so much suffering? Precisely because people had faith in, in their leaders in first, you know, to begin with, in the Chinese Communist Party, who said, uh, don't listen to what this doctor uh, is telling us. Don't listen to this whistleblower. Uh, everything's fine. Uh, you know, and, and then, of course, it's obvious that they're wrong, and they panic, and they have to lock down the nation. And then something very similar in our country. We don't need to have testing. All we have to have is travel bans. Our leader tells us things will be fine by Easter. Turns out that's not the case. So then we panic and then we lock down again because of ignoring the evidence and taking leaders on faith. So if that's a source of suffering, nothing is.
1: And not being ambitious, and particularly in this case, the leaders not being ambitious and people not demanding better of them. So demanding either more preparation or more freedom, you know more importantly, to enable people to prepare. Uh, and if you look at all the people who did fantastic things to scale up testing and were thwarted, it's a real scandal and a horror. But the even deeper perspective on the Pope's thing right is um, in these kind of situations, we should focus attention away from the transient that might be. Um, uh, a, a big part of our plans and what we've predicated our life and the specific plans for our lives on and turn attention to the things that are more enduring, that will always be there for us, that um, are um, really defining of the nature of reality. And I think the Pope's right that in times like this, that is what you have to do. And in a way, uh, one of the silver linings that can come out of a really bad time in life uh, you know, uh, Jose asks, is it possible to learn from suffering? I think this is one of the ways in which it is. Uh, one of the things that can come out of a really bad time in life is doing at a certain level of abstraction what the Pope says. It's a time where you're pushed to think about what really matters, what's important, what are the big things that determine um, direction in life, that determine what kind of world I'm going to live in and what I should do in my life, uh, as opposed to the small journalistic details that we're focused on ordinarily. But the problem with the Pope and with most of the thinkers we've looked at is I think they're just dead wrong on the question of what is it that determines uh, the shape of human life and what's possible to us. It's not faith. It's not that there's a dictator in the sky who's abiding and who will uh, help us uh, after making us suffer a lot. It's that human beings are a certain kind of animal that lives by our mind that's been able to create all the splendor around us, some small portion of which is being threatened by this latest uh, epidemic or pandemic. And that if we have confidence in the power of human reason and the power of our own minds, we can plot courses through this. Uh, As a society we can and as individuals we can. That's what's real and abiding and what matters.
0: Thanks, Greg. We need to start to wrap up. So I'm going to just uh, put the screen share back up because I want to uh, remind people that if you if you enjoyed our conversation today and you'd like to be able to, uh, see, to see more of these, we do these New Ideal Live webinars every Monday and Wednesday. And so uh, you can go to Ayn Rand Institute's YouTube channel. Uh, subscribe to our channel, please. Uh, it is It is our Uh, increasingly our uh, first uh, level of communication with the world. It's the first place to look to see what we've had to say about uh, the events of the day, especially on this webinar. And uh, uh, I also want to very, very quickly just ask those of you who are with us through Zoom uh, to uh, take a quick poll. Uh, We are interested in learning more about whether we are reaching uh, first-time viewers or whether we're looking uh, mostly uh, at uh, veterans, but either way, we want to know who you are, where you're coming from, what's your level of familiarity with Ayn Rand and her writings. And I'll leave that poll up until, uh, you know, for just one more minute because we are trying to keep these under an hour. Um, So uh, Greg, thanks again for joining us today. Uh, I have, as I mentioned, an article in the works on this topic. I'm going to, Uh, point people to these articles that we were just discussing, uh, analyze them, and then provide what we take to be the objectivist alternative uh, perspective on this topic of suffering. Uh, I also have uh, some of those passages uh, from Ayn Rand that uh, I referenced earlier uh, in the conversation. Um, And as always, please uh, stay tuned for more analysis uh, coming from the Ayn Rand Institute through our journal, New Ideal. Uh, where you will see us applying the ideas of reason, individualism, and capitalism to the analysis of the events in the world today. So end that poll and go ahead and stop the screen share. And uh, thank you all again for attending. Thank you, Greg. And we will see you all again for another one of these on Wednesday. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member.
1: Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.